Welcome to Breaking Down Patriarchy. I'm Amy McPhee Olivest. Today's text is called Killing the Angel in the House, and it's a collection of lectures and essays written by Virginia Woolf between 1905 and 1941. That phrase, killing the angel in the house, and what it represents has been really, really important in my life. So I cannot wait to share it and discuss it with my reading partner today, Rochelle Burnside. Hi, Rochelle. Hi, Amy. Thank you so much for being here, Rochelle. Um, Rochelle and I are friends from the Stanford Masters of Liberal Arts program. We've been dear friends all the way through our program as we not only did our foundations courses together, but then we kept choosing the same electives almost every quarter. Um, we studied William Blake, Dante, and the Sacred Feminine. And very memorably, Rochelle and I had some life-altering at least for me, life-altering conversations during our class on international women's health and human rights. Rochelle is incredibly well-read, incredibly well-spoken. And Rochelle, I've learned so much from you through the years that we've been friends. And I'm really thrilled that you're here with me today. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you for asking me. I'm so excited um, to be here to talk to you about these issues. I love what you're doing with this podcast. Thank you. So can I have you start by introducing yourself? Just tell us a little bit about who you are and where you're from. Sure. Um, so I was born and raised in California, and I've spent my entire life here with the exception of a year-long teacher exchange where I taught religion, philosophy, and ethics at a Catholic school in London. Uh, and that was an interesting experience on many levels, not the least of which was because like you, I was raised in a Mormon family, although I left the church when I was 18. And so, uh, you know, I came from this really niche Protestant background and a culture, uh, you know, in America where we don't teach religion in public schools. And then suddenly I find myself teaching not just Catholic theology, but religious practice for all different religions, Islam, Buddhism, Judaism, Sikhism, etc., because that's part of the required national curriculum in England, um, which I found refreshing, actually, because people were much less dogmatic and were able to have really nuanced, thoughtful conversations around faith and theology and religion in ways that we're not really able to have in the U.S. Um, a little bit about my family. My mother's adopted, uh, and her adopted parents both have ancestors that were part of the original group of settlers that migrated to Utah with Brigham Young. Um, her birth mother, who she connected with later in life, was also Mormon, um, has family roots in Georgia and Virginia, um, and they are from the original Scotch-Irish settlers. We don't know really anything about my mom's birth father except for a name, but we have done um, some DNA testing through 23andMe, and the results um, suggest that he has English, French, or German, and Scandinavian ancestry. My father's actually from Battle Creek, Michigan, and his maternal grandfather came from Glasgow, Scotland to Canada as an indentured servant after he was orphaned at the age of 14. And his, my dad's maternal great-grandmother was from Baden-Württemberg, Germany. Uh, the rest of the family is all English, English, Irish, and Welsh, with the exception of my dad's father, who we actually found out through the DNA testing was actually illegitimate. So the father that he grew up with was not his biological father. And we found out that my dad's dad was um, biracial, which no one in the family knew about. So um, even my grandfather. 
So I have this tiny 5% of my DNA from West Africa, specifically Nigeria, Cameroon, and the Ivory Coast, because of course, that's where the slave trade was. Um, And so through genealogical research and DNA, we've been able to figure out who my grandfather's paternal family was, um, but not his specific father, although we have a couple of possibilities. And so my two times great grandfather was a man, we think, um, named Franklin Johnson, who we know from his obituary was born into slavery in what is now West Virginia in 1850. And he died in 1945 in Michigan. So that's been kind of really interesting. Um, and, and kind of mind blowing, obviously. Uh, my mother, my father converted to Mormonism when he was in his teens, and my parents met when he was on his mission. And I grew up in Sacramento, um, and that was pretty much an all-white community. Um, and I lived there until I was 13, and then I moved to, to East San Jose when my mom remarried. Um, my stepfather was Chinese-American, and my middle school was a majority-minority school. So that was a real culture shift. Um, And it was a great education in learning that not everyone has the same life experience as you do. So I actually think that was um, really lucky for me. Um, I attended Santa Clara University. Uh, I graduated with BAs in English and history. I briefly worked in educational publishing and then high tech public relations before I went to San Jose State to get my teaching credential. And then I taught high school English for 21 years, and I worked with all levels from beginning English learners all the way up to AP students. And the longer that I was in education, the more passionate I became about addressing systemic inequities in the education system, uh, particularly for students of color and English learners. So I did a lot of work with a program called AVID, and um, I was in an Uh, an English language teacher on special assignment for the last few years before I transitioned out of the classroom. And I currently work as a teacher on special assignment, supporting English history and AVID teachers with curriculum and professional development. So my focus in that position is to try to encourage systemic changes at the classroom level in terms of the way we create curriculum, interact with and support students And then, of course, like you, I'm trying to finish my master's thesis for the Stanford program. And um, I'm writing about William's William Blake's illustrations of Dante's Divine Comedy. Um, And then on top of of it, I've started this Etsy business called Blue Gardens Beauty during the pandemic. um, And I make and sell natural artisan bath and beauty products. So bath bombs, lotion, shampoos, face mask, the face facials, masks, et cetera. So um, I'm tired. <laughs> <laughs> I bet you are. Yes. Yeah. And you're like amazing at everything you do. Um, you're such a fantastic teacher, just ha- being your classmate and watching you do presentations. And every time you raise your, your hand in class, um, you just have brilliant things to say. And also I've been a, a lucky recipient of some of your bath bombs and soap. So I can attest <laughs> to the, the quality of of your creations as well. So that's awesome. Thank you for that fascinating bio. I actually learned some things about you that I didn't know before. I didn't know you made a uh, double majored in English and history, for example. And oh. yeah, so interesting. Um, before we proceed with the text, I actually want to ask you one more thing. And that is, 
um, kind of what brought you to this project. What are your mm. thoughts briefly about breaking down patriarchy? Um, I think that one of the reasons that you and I bonded early in our master's program was that we, you know, had this mutual religious upbringing, right? And and we had this mutual frustration with the patriarchal nature of that religious upbringing. Um, and th even though my experience growing up Mormon was a little bit different than yours, my parents divorced when I was two, and both of them drifted away from the church at various points. I was primarily raised by my grandparents and my grandfather, who I absolutely adored, was the type of person who was always able to see everything in clear black and white, right and wrong terms. But my grandmother struggled with a lot of things. And I remember a period when I was little when she refused to go to church, but she wouldn't talk about it and she wouldn't talk about why. And when I was older, I learned that she had quit nursing school when she married my grandfather. Um, and that she'd had a nervous breakdown in the 1950s and she'd been hospitalized because of an eating disorder, which, you know, at the time didn't have a name, but now we would have realized what is, was anorexia. And so, you know, she was obviously dealing with a lot of stuff um, that didn't have an outlet. And I think she was frustrated. And the minute that my grandfather retired, my grandma began volunteering for the hospital auxiliary several times a week. So I think that was just something she never let go of and something she missed. And I think she just was one of those women of that era that was, you know, she had dreams that she wasn't allowed to fulfill. Um, and so I think she just really struggled to be what she was supposed to be. She had ambitions that she had to give up and things Unlike for my grandfather, things weren't always clear for her. And she was married to this man who never had questions. And I know that they loved each other because she told me about their marriage. But I also think she never felt fully understood. And that's probably part of the reason I began questioning Mormonism at a young age, which if my grandmother had known that would have broken her heart. But I just couldn't make myself be what I was supposed to be in that community. I was this intellectual woman. I wanted to go to college. I didn't necessarily want marriage and children, or at least not at a young age. And the church was just the first of many spaces where I felt that being a woman with a voice and a mind of my own was not appreciated. And that if I wanted to be acceptable, I would need to make myself smaller so that other people would be more comfortable with who I was. And that experience, unfortunately, carried through my college years um, and even through, to some extent, to my teaching. And it's exhausting to have to constantly try to edit yourself or make yourself palatable, right? To carry the emotional labor of navigating other people's discomfort with women and expressing with a woman who's expressing an opinion or being in a position of authority or challenging some preconceived notion of femininity. And it wasn't until I was in my 40s and started to see a really amazing therapist, who was a man, by the way, um, that I realized that he helped me realize that no matter how small I made myself, it was never going to be small enough so that people who had this ingrained misogyny were going to be comfortable and like me. And to recognize that when people dismiss your lived experiences as not being real when they accuse you of being angry or hysterical or playing the victim, 
when you are challenging their sexism, that they're actually trying to gaslight you and you don't need to engage with that. Um, it's, it's a constant battle and I struggle most days with it. And, you know, I don't even have that extra layer of racism on top of it that I, that I know that some of my female colleagues deal with, um, all the time. And so I can't even begin to fathom what's, what that's like. Um, so, you know, I'm lucky in that sense, Mm-hmm. But so I think that projects like this are incredibly important because, you know, I don't think anything is going to change until women stand with each other and we just set our boundaries and we call this stuff out and we refuse to participate in what I think is a toxic structure. Yeah. Wow. That was such an insightful and articulate uh response to my question, Rochelle. I'm so grateful for that. Thank you for sharing all of that. Um, I, I could relate very much to everything you talked about. And um, yeah, I really appreciate that. That's such a great introduction for today's episode. And just um, for the really kind of the ethos and the thrust of the whole project that we're doing. So um, it's awesome. Thank you so much for that. Um, before we get started, one last thing is uh, we need a review of who Virginia Woolf was. We talked about her in detail during our most recent episode, which was A Room of One's Own. But just as a review, I'd like to talk about her just a little bit and with a slightly different emphasis based on the text that we'll be reading. So Rochelle, could you tell us some details about Virginia Woolf? Sure. So Virginia Woolf was born Adeline Virginia Stephen in Kensington, London, England in 1882. Her father, Leslie Stephen, was a respected man of letters. And as a young girl, Woolf was introduced to many literary figures, including Henry James and others. Woolf also made great use of the family's home, family home's vast library, working her way through much of the English literary canon as a teenager. Her summers were spent in St. Ives, Cornwall, which would later form the setting for her famous novel, To the Lighthouse. For the purposes of this episode, we want to mention that To the Lighthouse is another must-read, especially if listeners were interested in understanding gender dynamics in the early 20th century. The character of Mr. and Mrs. Ramsey are very much modeled after Virginia's own parents, and the way they interact with each other very much illustrates this Victorian ideology of the angel in the house, which we're going to talk about today. Um, Virginia's mother died when she was just 13, which led Virginia to have a mental breakdown. Virginia wrote in her journals about being sexually abused by an older stepbrother throughout her entire childhood, and she struggled with severe bouts of depression her entire life. However, she did experience happy times as well, particularly as part of a robust and dynamic literary group called the Bloomsbury Group. She owned a publishing company. She was married to a man named Leonard Wolf, um, who loved her and whom she loved. Although she famously did have an affair with a woman named C- Vita Sackville West, who accompanied Virginia to the lecture Professions for Women, which we're going to be discussing today. Uh, she produced novels and essays and lectures that changed English literature forever and expanded society's understanding of gender. I particularly appreciate Virginia Woolf, because she lets us inside her own mind, as we'll see when we read and discuss this collection of essays. Thanks, Rochelle. 
Um, one last part that it's important to set up before we start talking about the essays is the concept of the angel in the house. This was the end of the Victorian era when Virginia Woolf was writing. So this, this era was, of course, named after Queen Victoria, who reigned from the 20th of June, 1837, until her death on the 22nd of January, 1901. And as we've talked about in past episodes, one pervasive feature of the Victorian era was the ideology of separate spheres, which held that men and women had complementary roles in society. The man's role was to work in the professional world, to lead in government, and really in all institutions, religious and secular. And then the woman's role was to be the man's supporter and helper, to nurture children at home and to be the the gentle, quiet, demure keeper of the hearth. This is also referred to as the Victorian cult of domesticity, where women were placed on a pedestal and really almost worshipped as self-sacrificing angels. But they were very strictly controlled and prohibited by law by men who made laws from leaving the domestic realm. So this idealization of the selfless, self-abnegating woman was captured and then perpetuated by a poem written in 1854 in England by a man named Coventry Patmore. He considered his wife, Emily, the ideal woman, and he wrote this long, really sentimental poem about all of her virtues. It's not a great poem, (laughs) and it wasn't popular at first, but Interestingly, it did become extremely popular in the United States, and then it caught back on in England after that, and its influence continued well into the 20th century, and it became actually part of many English literature courses, and it was once adopted by the Norton Anthology of English Literature. So even though it's not like a fantastic poem, it just kind of captured this feeling um, that was present in the culture at the time, the Victorian cult of domesticity. And so it kind of gained um, traction as a term that people knew. People would talk about the angel in the house, and that came from this poem. So um, we're just going to read two short excerpts. It's a very long poem, but this will give us an idea of what kind of behaviors this poem is extolling and idolizing. So could you read just those two short excerpts, Rochelle? Sure. The best half of creation's best, its heart to feel, its eye to see, the crown and complex of the rest, its aim and its epitome. Nay, might I utter my conceit, twere after all a vulgar song, for she's so simply, subtly sweet, my deepest rapture does her wrong. Yet it, yet is it now my chosen task to sing her worth as maid and wife, nor happier post than this I ask to live her laureate all my life. Man must be pleased, but him to please is woman's pleasure. Down the gulf of his condoled necessities, she casts her best, she flings herself. How often flings for naught, and yokes her heart to an icicle or whim, whose each impatient word provokes another, not from her, but him. While she, too gentle even to force his penitence by kind replies, waits by, expecting his remorse, with pardon in her pitying eyes. So the narrator of the poem has written what on the surface seems to be uh, an ode praising women 
as the best half of creation. And the narrators ascribes what we've come to regard, no doubt influenced by this poem, as stereotypically feminine characteristics to women, emotionality, simplicity, sweetness, selflessness, and of course, a desire to please men above all else. Um, the image of the women in the poem is patronizing, first of all. If you characterize women as childlike, innocent, and naive, of course, you're laying the groundwork to justify policing their lives with the excuse of protecting them. And of course, the narrator's assertion that it's the male prerogative to get what they want uh, when he says man must be pleased, right? And the justification of that selfishness by assuming that fulfilling male desire is women's greatest pleasure is a bit maddening. No one, male or female, must be pleased, but of course, everyone likes to be pleased regardless of gender. Yeah. But what I found most disturbing, I think, about the poem was the relationship dynamic between men and women that's described in which men, women basically kind of annihilate their selfhood in serving their husbands. And the husbands are not only unaware of the sacrifice, but they're often ungrateful or even abusive. The narrator's suggestion that women who silently endure this treatment without reproaching men for this bad behavior uh, and the idea that this is praiseworthy, um, that women are some type of gender martyrs, that's not just a sexist idea. That's an actually toxic idea. It is. I agree. And that I agree that I think the most disturbing part for me, too, is that he's praising it like, yeah. oh, my wife, um, I like. I'm so mean to her, right? She yokes her heart to an icicle or to a whim. Yeah. And like she, he talks about like being a jerk, really, like the guy that the man is impatient and um, really mean to her, but she's too gentle, you know, to even call him out on it. And um, yes. it, it does, it really does praise and hold up as ideal an, an emotionally abusive relationship. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and then encourages her to be passive aggressive and guilt him into behaving well. Right, it's right, right. Really such a toxic gender it's dynamic. Terrible. It's yeah, awful. You're, you're <laughs> right. Yeah, that she just kind of expects him his remorse with pardon in her pitying eyes, that she pities him that he's being so unkind. Yeah, it's pretty awful. Yeah. And so this was um this poem did was part of, you know, the canon, the literary canon. And, and like I said, it was very, very well known by people mm -hmm. um, and a representation of this underlying ideology of the separate spheres and, and idolizing that kind of, like you said, um, completely self-sacrificing, um, self-annihilating angel. That was what the angel in the house was. So knowing all of that, with all of that background, we're going to dive into the text. So as I mentioned in the introduction, this book is actually a collection of lectures and essays. It's not a novel like some of her other works or like A Room of One's Own is more like kind of a stream of consciousness essay. This is a collection of different lectures. There are seven of them, but Rochelle and I are just going to talk about two. We'll spend most of the time talking about the lecture called Professions for Women, which includes the metaphor of killing the angel in the house for which the whole um, compilation is named. And then briefly after that, um, we'll just say a couple of things about another um, essay called The Intellectual Status of Women, which is a really, really relatable back and forth between Wolf and one of her male friends about women's intellectual capacity. 
We'll publish all of the excerpts that we don't have time for today, along with our notes on that essay on the website. So just check that out on breakingdownpatriarchy.com. Um, and let's get started. We'll start with the, the lecture, Professions for Women. So Virginia Woolf read this lecture to a group of young women gathered at a meeting of the National Society for Women's Service on January 21st, 1931. It was published posthumously in 1942. And I'm going to start with um, an excerpt. I'm just going to read her very first two paragraphs of the lecture. She says, quote, when your secretary invited me to come here, she told me that your society is concerned with the employment of women, and she suggested that I might tell you something about my own professional experiences. It is true, I am a woman. It is true, I am employed. But what professional experiences have I had? It is difficult to say. My profession is literature, and that road was cut many years ago by Fanny Burney, by Aphra Ben, by Harriet Martineau, by Jane Austen, by George Eliot, many famous women, and many more unknown and forgotten have been before me, making the path smooth and regulating my steps. Thus, when I came to write, there were very few material obstacles in my way. Writing was a reputable and harmless occupation. The family peace was not broken by the scratching of a pen. No demand was made upon the family purse. For ten and sixpence, one can buy paper enough to write all the plays of Shakespeare, if one has a mind that way. Pianos and models, Paris, Vienna, and Berlin, masters and mistresses, are not needed by a writer. The cheapness of writing paper is, of course, the reason why women have succeeded as writers before they have succeeded in the other professions. End quote. So this reminded me of our previous episode of A Room of One's Own where Wolf talks extensively about people's willingness to invest in men's education and careers, but not in women's. Wolf talks about the simplicity of writing. You just have to sit down and move the pen from left to right, she says. And she talks about how as soon as she was published, and because she came from a family of means, she didn't even have to use the money on rent. So she bought a Persian cat, like this frivolous purchase that just sounded fun to her. And so she kind of, um, I love how she um, is aware and acknowledges her class privilege that mm -hmm. she didn't need to rely on writing as a profession in order to pay the rent and pay the bills, right? Yeah. Um, but now she starts after this part uh, about the Persian cat and how she kind of established herself as a writer because it was relatively easy and and having acknowledged the women who had gone before her she then starts into the meat of the essay which is to talk about the process of writing and a certain problem that keeps getting in her way so Rochelle do you want to take that next part sure so Wolf writes but wait a moment articles have to be about something mine I seem to remember was about a novel by a famous man and while I was writing this review, I discovered that if I were going to review books, I should need to do battle with a certain phantom. And the phantom was a woman. And when I came to know her better, I called her after the heroine of a famous poem, The Angel in the House. It was she who used to come between me and my paper when I was writing reviews. It was she who bothered me and wasted my time and so tormented me that at last I killed her. You who come of a younger and happier generation may not have heard of her. You may not know what I mean by the angel in the house. 
I will describe her as shortly as I can. She was intensely sympathetic. She was immensely charming. She was utterly unselfish. She excelled in the difficult arts of family life. She sacrificed herself daily. If there was chicken, she took the leg. If there was a draft, she sat in it. In short, she was so constituted that she never had a mind or a wish of her own, but preferred to sympathize always with the minds and wishes of others. Above all, I need not say it, she was pure. Her purity was supposed to be her chief beauty, her blushes, her great grace. In those days, the last of Queen Victoria, every house had its angel. And when I came to write, I encountered her with the very first words. The shadow of her wings fell on my page. I heard the rustling of her skirts in the room. Directly, that is to say, I took my pen in my hand to review that novel by a famous man. She slipped behind me and whispered, My dear, you are a young woman. You are writing about a book that has been written by a man. Be sympathetic, be tender, flatter, deceive. Use all the arts and wiles of our sex. Never let anybody guess that you have a mind of your own. Above all, be pure. And she made as if to guide my pen. I now record the one act for which I take some credit to myself. I turned upon her and caught her by the throat. I did my best to kill her. My excuse, if I were to be had up in a court of law, would be that I acted in self-defense. Had I not killed her, she would have killed me. She would have plucked the heart out of my writing. For as I found directly, I put pen to paper, you cannot review even a novel without having a mind of your own, without expressing what you think to be the truth about human relations, morality, sex, and all these questions, according to the angel of the house, cannot be dealt with freely and openly by women. They must charm, they must conciliate, they must, to put it bluntly, tell lies if they are to succeed. Thus, whenever I felt the shadow of her wing or the radiance of her halo upon my page, I took up the ink pot and flung it at her. She died hard. Her fictitious nature was of great assistance to her. It is far harder to kill a phantom than a reality. She was always creeping back when I thought I had dispatched her. Though I flatter myself that I killed her in the end, the struggle was severe. It took much time that had better been spent upon learning Greek grammar or in roaming the world in search of adventures. But it was a real experience. It was an experience that was bound to befall all women writers at that time. Killing the angel in the house was part of the occupation of a woman writer. Thanks, Rochelle. There's so much to talk about there. Um, my first thought was just, as you know, Rochelle, I actually wanted to write about killing the angel in the house for my master's thesis. Um, but when I presented my idea, I was told that no one takes that poem seriously anymore. And I was told that it was irrelevant in the 21st century. So for me, when I found killing the angel in the house, and I started doing research, and I learned about the separate spheres ideology. I had never heard of it before, but I felt like the concept was a revelation. And it really helped me understand some dynamics that I had witnessed and participated in for my entire life. So I told this professor who was telling me that I couldn't write about it because it was irrelevant and outdated. I, sa I said, maybe this is irrelevant and outdated for you, but it is not for me. And it is not for 
most of the women that I know. And I told her that my guess was that most women who are from conservative religious backgrounds would still relate to it. So what do you think, Rochelle? Like, could you relate to it when you read it? Oh, yeah, totally. Um, I vaguely remember reading an excerpt from the poem when I was in college, not because it was considered, like you said, excellent literature, but as a relic of sort of gendered literature. You know what I mean? Okay. Yep. Um, And I remember thinking kind of the same thing, that I recognized the separate spheres ideology as something that we had been taught growing up. But I also agree with you that I think that on the surface, that many people in America today would wouldn't take the separate spheres ideology seriously. But if you delve below the surface, you know, ingrained culturally, the concept that there are male and female spheres, I think still exists in the culture, even though we would pay lip service to the fact that it doesn't. And I don't think that just exists in conservative religious spaces. You mean you only have to look as far as the effect, for instance, that, you know, COVID-19 is having on working women to Mm. see that while we, you know, will intellectually reject a separation of spheres, in actuality, women still carry the majority of the domestic burden in heterosexual households, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah, Um, just automatically. Yeah, despite also making inroads into the workforce. And if that wasn't the case, we'd see more equity in the effect that the pandemic is having on on heterosexual couples um, who where both parents are working, but we're not. Well, that's a great point. I guess the difference is that in some um, in some contexts, and especially in conservative religion, it's it's really clung to unapologetically and quite overtly, right? It's, it's claimed very proudly, yes. the separate spheres ideology. And I, and I guess that in yes. secular culture, um, they may say that that's a thing of the past and that it is a relic, but what you just pointed out is that it's not. And that, I mean, it's a timeline, right? If you hold a, you know, if you make, create a timeline and look at all of the different phases and trends that human society has gone through over the years, they don't just end like on a certain day that one day it was in people's psyches and the next day it's not, right? It takes a long, yeah. long time to phase out. Um, exactly. So that's a really, really great point. Yeah. Um, the next point that I wanted to bring out from that excerpt that you just read is I think it's so interesting. And I, especially when I read this the first time, I really wrestled a lot with that, the, that she is doing battle with a woman. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was interesting. It's that the person that she does battle with is not her dad who dominated her mom. And like you said, that's, um, really represented in her book to the lighthouse mm-hmm. that that Mr. and Mrs. Ramsey are modeled on her parents. Largely it's pretty autobiographical. I think it's interesting that she doesn't battle her dad. It's she's battling her mom and it's not Coventry Patmore who wrote the poem, who put his wife like in a gilded cage. Mm-hmm. It's not that person that she's doing battle with. It's the woman. It's the angel herself And I thought, you know, I've just been really wrestling with that. And like, is that fair? It's kind of the woman who's victimized by the system. So why is she 
killing the woman instead of killing the man. What do you think about that? Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point. I I don't know that there's not a space to do the battle with the men, right? Sure. But I think well, for it, sure. Yeah, definitely, right? But I think it comes maybe from an understanding that maybe you can't control the thoughts and beha- behavior of other people, but you can control your own. So what good is it to try and gauge, you know, with her father or with Coventry Patmore if she can't get rid of her own internalized misogyny, yeah. right? Because she, you know, she talks about writing and hearing that voice on her shoulder whispering in her ear. So, you know, she can't write till she kills it, till she stops hearing that voice that she's internalized. Mm-hmm. And I totally get that impulse, right? She has to learn to reject her own acceptance of this male defined image of what a woman should be. Um, even if that acceptance is subconscious and define what she thinks a woman is based on her own lived experience outside of this patriarchal construct. I mean, how can she or any of us truly understand ourselves and speak our truth when we're censoring our thoughts and filtering our experiences so that what we say is socially acceptable, right? Especially for her as a writer, Um, you know, especially when what is deemed socially acceptable is a woman who, as she writes, she says, quote, never had a mind or a wish of her own but rather defer to the thoughts and wishes of others. She says that the voice of the angel whispered in her ear, right? Um, And that compromises who she is as an artist. And it tells her she's got to flatter this male writer that she's trying to review. And she has to disguise her real thoughts. In fact, she's got to describe the fact that she even has thoughts at all to her readers. And you can't be an artist if you don't have honesty and authenticity. And that's completely anathema to to do if you're censoring yourself to fit with so, so social convention. And so the angel of the house, as she argues, she says, cannot deal with f- freely and openly questions of human relations, morality, and sex. And instead, she's, you know, they've got to charm, they've got to entertain, they've got to lie. Um, and it's interesting because, you know, you, you talked about this before that she sort of um, acknowledges her class privilege And I think that there's something in there about the fact that she credits the fact that she had this independent income and that because she didn't have to rely on the money from her writing uh, with the fact that she had the freedom to kill the angel of the house. And so I think it's important that because she has, she can afford to do that, right? She can afford to, kill the angel in the house. She can afford to defy convention um, because she has the means to do so. She's not going to starve by pushing these boundaries. Um, She's in a unique position to kill the angel in the house. Whereas women without her financial means, her social position, the safety of her class, the safety of her race may not have been able to do so. Um, And so a bigger question is whether non-white woman were even protected by the image of the angel at the house in the first place. Mm. Right. Yeah. You know, whether they were included in that Victorian idea, mm-hmm. but this, you know, alludes to this frequent criticism of mainstream feminism that it's 
white, it's upper middle class, it consists of wealthy women and Western women in particular, and that they have the freedom to take this liberated stand on theoretical or artistic points because they have the economic freedom and space to do so. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's such a great point, Rochelle. Yeah. I mean, most women and actually most men for that matter, don't have that luxury, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, And that's such an important point when you said that not all women were protected by Mm -hmm. the image of the protected by the image of the angel in the house. So even though being trapped in the domestic sphere and not allowed participation in anything other than selfless service really is oppressive. That's such a good reminder that we have to be careful not to claim universality for that experience. Right. Yeah. Because a lot of, I I think a lot of women would say like, what are you talking about? I've never had a day off of work in my life, let alone anyone call me an angel. Right. So exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So we need to be careful of that. So I'm really glad you pointed that out. Um, with that said, I guess if we're addressing Wolf's experience um, and kind of Wolf's mother's experience and a lot of the women that she witnessed as she was growing up in her life, um, and I think there are a lot of women who can relate to that feeling of being, as Thomas Paine put it, both adored and oppressed. Mm. And that kind of reminded me of another point, which is what Sophie and I talked about on our episode of The Virgin Mary, right? That men create these goddess figures of what they think the ideal woman should be. And then we women get these complicated psychological relationships with these embodiments of men's ideal women. And we try to be like them and feel like we can't ever measure up. And then feeling this mixture of reverence but all, and striving to be like them, but also resentment that we can't. And it reminds me of Beatrice in Dante's Divine Comedy. We talked about this when we took that class on Dante together. And you are like a resident expert on Dante. So I can't even, I I don't want to talk about it to you. (laughs) (laughs) But he's our, I mean, he's our, he's always talking about the divine Beatrice, right? And it's Mm -hmm. only Beatrice who can lead Dante to heaven. And so some people talk about how awesome it is for women that Dante worships this woman and she's a goddess But to me, when I read it, I just thought, well, this woman is just a creation of the author's own mind. He just created this ideal and she's not even a real person. She has no personality of her own. She has no work. She has no goals of her own. It's just this, um, yeah, this idealized dream, right? Oh, exactly. Yeah, completely. Um, Yeah. The Beatrice of Dante's poetry is this idealized construct you're right, that serves as a muse to inspire his work. Dante, as you pointed out, never writes about her as a full, fully realized, real, three-dimensional woman. Right. She exists only to serve a purpose in his life, in his spiritual journey. And in Dante's actual life, he claimed to have only met her um, twice, once when they were nine, and then again when they were 18. They both married other people and had children. She died quite young, I think in her early 20s. And he loved an idea of Beatrice and what that idea inspired in his art. But he had no understanding, like you said, of her as a person. Um, and, and he doesn't seem to have had any real interest um, in her, in the actual personhood 
uh, Beatrice Portinari. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. And that, yeah, that's exactly what I was feeling. I guess why I thought of Dante and Beatrice is because that's the sense I get too from Pat Moore's poem with the angel in the house, right? That he, it's not a real person he's talking about. It's his idealization of what he thinks a woman should be. And this person fits that perfectly. And so he praises that. (laughs) Um, Okay. So on to the next part. So this quote struck a really deep chord in me when Virginia Woolf describes the angel in the house by saying, quote, she was intensely sympathetic. She was immensely charming. She was utterly unselfish. She excelled in the difficult arts of family life. She sacrificed herself daily. If there was chicken, she took the leg. If there was a draft, she sat in it. In short, she was so constituted that she never had a mind or wish of her own, but preferred to sympathize always with the minds and wishes of others, end quote, um, which you read. I have such mixed feelings, right? Because I really, really relate to this quote. And not only is that what was modeled for me in my life, but I feel like my natural traits are actually quite aligned with that description. I feel like I am naturally a very nurturing person. I love taking care of other people. I've been like that since I was a little, little kid, as long as I can remember. And my parents, that's how they described me when I was little too. I love cooking for people. I love comforting people when they're sad. I love being a nurse to people when they're sick. I love writing people little notes. And my kids even tease me because like if a if a cookie falls off the cookie sheet and gets mangled, I always take that cookie and I'll be like, oh, I will love you. Don't worry, <laughs> cookie. Like, <laughs> I don't want the cookie to feel rejected and unloved. And so, I mean, my automatic response, honestly, is to take the worst thing so no one else has to take the worst thing. And I do, I actually kind of like that about myself. Like, I do think it's a, it can be a really positive trait, Um but what I object to, I guess, as I think of that and I think, ah, oh, am I off here, right? I guess what I object to is making those traits gendered mm-hmm. because yeah. as, right, like it's it's noble to sacrifice, I think, like it's noble to sacrifice yourself for somebody else. Society depends on that and healthy relationships depend on people making compromises and people doing thoughtful things for each other, right? But Um, I think back to Mary Wollstonecraft and Sari Grimke and John Stuart Mill and others that we've read and discussed on this project. And I, I think if what they all pointed out is if it's a positive trait for women, then it's a positive trait for men. If it's a positive trait for men, then it's a positive trait for women. And that we, what we should focus on is um, maybe the question to what extent is you know, self-sacrifice and nurturing a positive human trait, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And not make it a woman's trait. So I have a friend who is a man and he really subscribes to the angel in the house ideology. And he always says that self-sacrifice is the most noble thing a human being can do. And that that is the woman's role. And he calls himself a feminist because he worships women because of what he calls their noble self-annihilation. And he really believes that women in particular are supposed to do this. And that is what kind of makes them goddesses. And my friend and I have spent just 
hours and hours debating this over the course of years. And I have never yet been able to help him understand why that feels unfair to me for men to require women specifically to sacrifice themselves perpetually. Yeah. And why I don't want to be worshipped. Yeah. I just want to be a peer, a peer adult, and to have the same rights of self-determination that he has. And though I am naturally quite a nurturing person, actually, interestingly, so is he. He's Mm -hmm. quite a nurturing person too. And I sense sometimes as we talk that he's wrestling with a little bit of toxic masculinity that he's absorbed where he doesn't Mm -hmm. like that he is nurturing because he's been taught his whole life. He's a bit older than me. So he's almost like kind of his, his older siblings are like almost the age of my parents. And so I think as he's trying to figure out which of these traits are gendered and do they have to be Mm -hmm. gendered, that's maybe what. Um, comes out in these conversations, but I have never been able to really make any headway with him. So I, do you have any advice for me on how, on how to help him see that this is a problematic paradigm? I don't, you know, first of all, he's not going to like this, but I don't know that he gets to self-define as a feminist when he's arguing with a woman who's telling him her actual thoughts and feelings and he doesn't listen to them. Hmm. Right. And at, when you're saying these are my, this is what I think, this is what I feel. This is my real life experience. And he says, no, I'm not going to listen to you because what I think is best for you is better than what you think is best for yourself. I don't think you get to self-identify as a feminist, whether you're a man or a woman. You need to listen. It's because the, the bottom line is feminism is I think women are adults Mm-hmm. I think they have minds of their own, just like men are adults and women have the right to make decisions for their own lives. And like you said, these traits are not gendered, right? Good traits and bad traits are not gendered. They're just human traits and, and women like men are human beings. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you can't, it, you know, it brings to mind, you know, the women's women's marches that that happened right after the 2016 election. We were at the first women's march. And one of my friends was carrying a sign that says, I'm with her and it had arrows pointing all over the place to like meant to be to the women around her. Mm-hmm. And, um, and my my friend is um, a woman of color. And uh, a white man stopped her in the middle of the march and says, you need to add men to that sign. Oh boy. (laughs) And I thought, Oh boy, you could not, this is like an SNL skit. You couldn't write this. And she was like, excuse me. (laughs) And wow. It's like, and he's like, cause you know, men are here too. And I, and she's like, what is happening? Like she was so, and this is a woman who is not, not afraid of voicing you know, her thoughts, but she was so taken aback at like, you are literally mansplaining my own sign to me at a women's march. At a women's march. (laughs) Oh my God. For feminism. You know what I mean? Wow. And that, that was a man who thought he was a feminist. Yeah, you're right. You can't make that up. Yeah. You can't make that up. So, you know, positive, like you said, positive traits aren't gendered. Uh, And, and the whole point of feminism is that there isn't just one way to be a woman. There isn't just one way to be a man. Uh, and this idea that that women need to perpetually sacrifice themselves at the expense, you know, for everybody else, yep. 
that's a cop-out that's historically been used to excuse bad behavior in men and force women into the role of being moral gatekeepers for male behavior, while simultaneous, simultaneously shaming us for traits that allow men to wield power in society. So I'm going to call shenanigans on that BS. <laughs> All right. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, you and I are both people who feel things, and we know this about each other, we both feel things extraordinarily deeply. But our modes of caring for people are different. And so one of the things that I've experienced is that even though I am actually a very kind, generous, caring person. You are. You, de- I definitely think of you as that way. Yeah. I, but, you know, my entire adult life, I never have until I went into therapy with that great therapist because I didn't I don't express it in the same way you do. Right. And because the way my caring evinces itself is is different than yours and which is different than sort of the stereotypical way that women are supposed to express it um in in many ways in a lot of my adult relationships and even in my some of my family relationships i've been called unmaternal i've been called unfeminine i've been called cold and i bought into all of it because i had that angel in the house voice and it wasn't until I went into therapy that my therapist is like, what are you talking about? Like all of the ways you're telling me that you have sacrificed and put yourself second for people, right? To the point where you are a shell and a husk and have ended up in therapy and these people are taking advantage of you, right? Yeah. And so, you know, I think that that if that's who you if that's who you are and that's your natural way of being it can be great and healthy and we all need those people in life but but not everybody cares in the same way and not everybody needs the same kind of care and love right yeah that's true yeah and so i don't see i mean there's times where some people need to draw boundaries and that's okay and i'm the kind of person if i see somebody being bullied or hurt i'm going to go barreling in and I'm ready to cut someone, right? <laughs> Whereas mm-hmm. you're someone who's so much calmer and gentler and less crazy. And I've learned <laughs> a lot from you <laughs> how to be, behave better. And, you know, I don't think that any either way is better than the other. They're just yeah. different. Yeah. But I suspect that maybe your friend might make, and I don't know, I could be judging incorrectly, but might make some type of value judgment about one type of womanhood is better than the other. Right. And I, you know, I, I'm also going to call BS on that, but I worship women line and, and you touched on this because this term worship implies some type of idolatry as if women are some type of deity. And on the surface, while that seems complimentary in reality, it's just another way of defining us in this really one dimensional manner and refusing to accept that we are fully realized, we are three-dimensional human beings, we have positive and negative traits, we have wants and needs just like men do, Um, it's another type of gilded cage. Because you'll worship women, right? When people say that, it's like you'll worship women as long as we fit into your imaginary, idealized vision of womanhood. But the minute we're human, the minute we're messy, right? You're going to punish us for falling short of your expectations. Yeah. Yeah. Well said. Well said. Thanks for that. I agree. I mean, yeah, I guess that's, that's why we, we thought of Dante and Beatrice and that's why we thought of, again, like the Virgin Mary and all of these, um, unrealistic project. They're just projections. It's like literally like a projector, like the man has 
light beaming out of his eyes and yes. you know creating a hologram and then worships it. <laughs> and <laughs> right? you mentioned toxic masculinity and toxic masculinity is the ugly flip side of that coin. Yeah. Right? Yep, yep, yep. Because sure. it's 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 just as much a cage for men. Yes. As the angel in the house is for women. It is and it's not good for relationships. These no. these gendered expectations I've never seen in my relationships and, and talking with friends and talking, you know, just talking with people as I get older, as an adult, I, I don't see that going very well, honestly. Okay. So another part that I wanted to bring out is that Wolf describes the angel as standing over her shoulder, whispering in her ear, which you talked about a little bit, um, but making Wolf constantly aware of how she was being perceived by men. Mm-hmm. And I could very much relate to that. Do you ever feel that way? And do you think that a lot of women feel that way? Oh, all the time. Uh, and unfortunately, I don't think it's just men who buy into that perception. I've actually been on an interview panel uh, with a female administrator. And we were interviewing this, this female teacher who was extraordinarily qualified, confident um, in her abilities. She was talented. Um, and the administrator after the interview said that she didn't like the candidate because she seemed like a bitch. And I was just struck speechless because I thought, wow, that is some internalized misogyny right there. Wow. And I've also told you this story, but when I was in college, I took an ethics class and it was really a traumatic experience. Um, there were a pair of boys in the class who constantly made these really horrific, homophobic, racist, sexist comments. And they weren't just making these comments in the context of the arguments that they were making about whatever topic we were discussing, but they were also saying them as ad hominem attacks against other students. Um, and the teacher didn't really intercede in any of this discussion. And so during the course of the quarter, you know, other students and I just kept pushing back against these, I mean, really awful things that these kids were saying. Um, And, you know, of course, the arguments they were making were completely illogical and idiotic, in addition to being offensive. So we were required to keep this response journal um, that the professor asked that we keep for the course. And I remember writing in the response journal that I found it just really upsetting that, you know, people were being called names, including me, and that, you know, I felt like having to argue with people who weren't arguing in good faith. And the male professor's response was, you know, if you talked less, people might listen to you more. And it never once occurred to me, I remember reading that and just being so humiliated, because I thought, it never once occurred to me that the professor was wrong. Mm -hmm. And that he was being misogynistic. I took what he said to heart and I didn't speak again for the rest of that quarter. Um, And because that wasn't the first time I'd been told that, that I was too opinionated. I had too, you know, I was too mouthy. I was too whatever. And so that haunted me for years until I actually went into um, teaching credential school and we were reading research. And I learned that what happened to me was something that quite frequently happens to female students in academia, Mm -hmm. um, who dared to speak out. Mm -hmm. And then I was so angry. But even though I learned about that 20 something years ago, it still is ingrained. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I talked about it with you when I started in the Stanford program, I had anxiety after every class that first quarter, every time I, because I thought, oh, I wonder if I talked too much and dominated the conversation. 
So, you know, I'm 48 years old now, and I still have to consciously tell myself that if I talk less, all I'm doing is silencing myself. Mm-hmm. And even though I'll speak up, I'll feel anxiety about it days afterwards. And so I have to constantly just rewrite the script. And I yeah, thought I- about that while watching Christine Blasey Ford's calm, you know, her careful testimony during those Kavanaugh hearings, because, you know, she's relating this trauma she's endured and she's doing so in such a professional, reasonable manner. And then comparing that to Brett Kavanaugh's behavior, which is petulant. He was belligerent Mm -hmm. and he's having this unprofessional meltdown. And I honestly couldn't remember seeing a man at that level of achievement um, of public life behave so poorly in public. His response alone, whether or not you believed her accusations, his response to the accusations I felt should have been disqualifying mm-hmm. for for a level of the Supreme Court. But of course it wasn't. And I just kept thinking there is no way a woman would be allowed to show that level of anger that level of immaturity and belligerence in public, no matter how righteous her cause, no matter how wrong she'd been and expect to escape unscathed, let alone get a job. Absolutely. It'd just be called hysteria, right? She was unhinged and hysterical. Yeah. Right. And and then you think about Kamala, Kamala Harris's performance in the vice presidential debate was just like a masterclass in what women have to do to navigate public perception. Mm-hmm. You know, Joe Biden, Donald Trump, Mike Pence, they could interrupt each other. They could interrupt the mo- moderators. They can tell each other to shut up. They can call each other names, um, especially the female moderators. They all interrupted. They could tell lies with impunity. They could be angry and petulant. But she had to remain calm. She had to keep a smile on her face and she had to assert her right to speak politely. And afterwards, women all over the country recognized both the experience of being talked over and shut down and that strategy she had to use that she needed to be palatable and genial in order to make the fact that, that she had a voice and a mind easier for some people to swallow. Right. While she quietly asserted her ability to speak and still some people called her nasty and still she called got called nasty by Trump. And Wolf writes about the emotional labor that it takes to kill the angel of the house. She says, quote, the struggle was severe. It took much time that had better have been spent learning Greek grammar or in roaming the world, the world in search of adventures. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. So much energy is expended by women to make themselves socially palatable, right? It's exhausting to always have to strategize, not just about the content of our words, but about the delivery, because we know that our message will be received through the filter of the misogyny around us. But as Wolf writes, that's, you know, you can't win that battle. Mm-hmm. And that all that happens is you kill yourself in the end. So I go back to that point that no matter how small and inoffensive you make yourself, it is never going to be small enough for those who think women should just be sh- silent and invisible altogether. Mm. So true. Yeah. Okay. A couple more points, just because there's such rich stuff in this um, essay and I, I think it's just so applicable to real life. Mm. One more thing that I wanted to bring out is the sentence, quote, I acted in self-defense. Had I not killed her, she would have killed me. When I read that sentence Mm. the first time, I cried, actually. Yeah. Um, 
when she writes, she would have, meaning the angel, she would have plucked the heart out of my writing. And I feel like I have lived in that wrestle with the angel my entire life. And I have felt myself dying. Um, In fact, I would say even, I mean, this podcast project in a way is me really claiming and asserting my own voice. And um, I'm even so, like, even as I'm so confident and speaking out on all this stuff, I'm constantly haunted by what men will think of this project. And I'm just choosing to ignore it. (laughs) But it, it does come up all the time. I feel that presence on my shoulder. Um, and I'm just choosing, I'm choosing to try to kill it and to not listen to the voice. Um, is there anything that you've ever not done because you were too afraid of what the angel and the male control that the angel represents would think? Um, too many things to name. I think my entire twenties and thirties were that, um, I, I often, I thought, I thought something was wrong with me because my instincts would tell me something else. Um, and then, you know, that therapist I told you about told me something really amazing. He said that you've been taught by almost everyone who shaped you to distrust your own experiences and your own thoughts and feelings. And that was hands down the single most mind blowing realization of my life. And I started to think back on all those times I hadn't done what I really wanted or needed to do and instead did what I was told I should want to do. And every time I did that, it was a huge mistake and I was miserable. And I'm only now learning to trust myself and my voice. And I still feel enormous anxiety for it, uh, for days about it when I do it. It's like, I'll do it, but then I'll stew about it and I'll worry about it. And I'll say that as I get older, I've started to genuinely stop caring as much about what men think about me for the most part in terms of whether they like me as a person or as a woman. Um, But it's like, you know, half my life. It's taken half my life. Yeah. And, um, and I'm, Yeah, go so, ahead. And, and, you know, I think we had this conversation once in our master's class. I remember there was one time where I don't remember which one of us, but all the women in the master's class, we were in the ladies room during one of the breaks. And one of us said, do you think the guys ever worry about this stuff? Yes, that's exactly what I was going to say when you and I just started to talk at the same time. I was going to say, do you remember that conversation? And all the women said the same thing. You and I thought the same exact thing. Yeah, And we we went back and asked and they said no. (laughs) No, they never did. No. Exactly. I, yeah. We, and I remember us kind of like making eye contact and smiling at each other because we had a wonderful, wonderful cohort of yeah. really well, great men. They and were I would, sweet. I, they're lovely. They're lovely. Such great people. And, but I would notice like, okay, I won't mention them by name, but like I would watch one of the men just talk and talk. And I would think this is really interesting and great stuff. And he would finish and I'd watch his face and I would think, I really do not think he is going to second guess everything he said on the way home in the car. He's not going to wonder if he talked too much. He's not going to wonder if he said the right thing or if he cut off the professor or if he went the, you know, the wrong way that the, that the professor didn't want the discussion to go or if he took too much airtime. I thought he's not thinking about any of that. And he, he just shouldn't. talks. And he shouldn't. Exactly. And he shouldn't. And I thought, and then I shouldn't either. Yeah. But that was so validating to have that conversation in the bathroom that one time and have it, but sad too. And to have all of the women say, Oh yeah, I do that too. I just agonize all the way home in the car thinking about, yeah, whether it was okay that I talked that much, especially that. Yeah. 
and then just can't sleep because I am second guessing everything Every I say. Time. Why do we? <sighs> I don't know. And Ugh. to and to give them credit, when we asked them about it, they all looked at us like we were kind of crazy. Like, why right. do you second guess? And then they're right. like, stop doing that. You don't need to. Right. <laughs> they're like, right. don't do it. Yeah. Just don't do it. Like, yeah, it's a really helpful conversation. <laughs> So they, I mean, they're lovely and supportive and they, yep. they don't make us feel like we have to, but bless them. They, they just, it never occurred to them that we would. Right. You know? Exactly. Yeah. My husband's always shocked by that too. And always trying to help me to not do that <laughs> and, yeah. and to, and to be more confident. I do want to study this more and find out like, what is it in girls and women exactly that makes us that way? As um, a teacher, I've always made the joke that I don't believe in reincarnation, but I make the joke that uh, in my next life, I want to come back with the confidence of a 15 year old boy with access to Google. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. I've heard you say that. and I love it. (laughs) That's fantastic. Okay. Let's go on to where Wolf describes the woman writer poised with her pen over the paper, waiting for an idea to come to her. And she thinks of an idea and it starts to take her somewhere productive, but then her momentum crashes into something hard, some resistance. So Wolf says, quote, the imagination had dashed itself against something hard. The girl was roused from her dream. She was indeed in a state of the most acute and difficult distress. To speak without figure, she had thought of something, something about the body, about the passions with which it was unfitting for her as a woman to say. Men, her reason told her, would be shocked. The consciousness of what men will say of a woman who speaks the truth about her passions had roused her from her artist's state of unconsciousness. She could write no more. The trance was over. Her imagination could work no longer. This, I believe, to be a very common experience with women writers— They are impeded by the extreme conventionality of the other sex. For though men sensibly allow themselves great freedom in these respects, I doubt that they realize or can control the extreme severity with which they condemn such freedom in women. And that's the end of the quote. So men acted with sexual freedom and women could not. Men could write about sexuality women could not. And this is definitely still true, right? I mean, even though huge progress has been made since the 1930s, I definitely think this is true. I And it made me laugh and wonder what Wolf would think of the vagina monologues. She'd probably be very happy that progress has been made. But what do you think about that? Yeah, I think the big sticking point for real equality is always going to be sex and sexual expression. Um, I, I think that our society is terrified of women who own their sexuality and aren't embarrassed by it. Um, Wolf comes to a point in her writing where she's blocked because she wants to say something real, something honest about the body and sex, but she's inhibited from doing so, right? Because she knows that men can't handle women being that real and honest about the body and sex. It's too shocking. It's too offensive. And it reminds me of this absolute meltdown that, that people have had, particularly um, a s- segment of the conservative sort of um, blogosphere about that that WAP song by Cardi B and Megan Thee Stallion. And, you know, you had people like Ben Shapiro, who's, you know, calls himself this free speech advocate, literally releasing a video, reading from the lyrics, but refusing to say the word pussy, instead referring to the song as wet ass P word, 
P word meaning female genitalia is what he said, clutching his pearls because it was the end of civilization. And then he followed that up by tweeting, quote, as I also discussed on the show, my only real concern is that the women involved who apparently require a bucket and a mop get the medical care they require. (laughs) My doctor's, my doctor wife's differential diagnosis, bacterial diagnosis, bacterial vaginosis, yeast infection, or trichomonosis, thus demonstrating both his own lack of understanding of basic female anatomy and the sad state of his marital bed, apparently, right? <laughs> oh, gosh. In like the world's best self-own, which people pointed out to him. And oh, it's like, dear. you know, it's, she, you know, Virginia Woolf points out the double standard that men allow themselves this total freedom to discuss the body and sex, but then they react with what she calls extreme severity and condemnation when women exercise the same freedom. So, you know, it's okay for male musicians to rap and sing about, you know, their genitalia for the last 50 years, right? Right. Or it's okay for Donald Trump to brag about grabbing women by the same female genitalia that Ben Shapiro and Tucker Carlson can't bring themselves to say out loud when they're talking about WAP by Cardi B. But, you know, Cardi B and Megan Thee Stallion talk about it and suddenly it's an entire segment on their show. Wow. You know? Yeah. you know, there's this writer from The Guardian named Arwa Madawi, and she, she wrote that, you know, some men are fine with female sexuality as long as they can control it. So, you know, women's bodies are policed in so many ways, both literally and figuratively. And, you know, this is another type of policing. We're not even allowed to talk about the lived realities of our bodies without being shamed or judged. We're taught that our bodies are gross. So we remove our hair, we cover up our natural odor, we're shamed over our periods, we're shamed for breastfeeding in public, we're shamed for feeling sexual desire, we're shamed for not feeling sexual desire, right? And we're definitely shamed if we discuss any of it. Yeah. But men can discuss, as you point out, men can discuss their sexuality in whatever way they want. Yep. Without And, and it's locker room talk and it's just fine, right? Totally. And without worry about what women... Because women don't police men in the same way, right? Yeah. And so they don't have to worry about it. Exactly. Great points. Um, okay, we have arrived at our last quote from this lecture. Mm-hmm. And I'm just going to read it. Um, it's it's the last paragraph that Virginia Woolf shares. And so I'm just going to let it stand. And then we'll just close out the episode by sharing some quick takeaways from the other um essay that we were going to share, but first we'll wrap up professions for women. Quote, those are the questions that I should like, had I time to ask you, even when the path is nominally open, when there is nothing to prevent a woman from being a doctor, a lawyer, a civil servant, there are many phantoms and obstacles, as I believe, looming in her way. To discuss and define them is, I think, of great value and importance, for thus only can the labor be shared, the difficulties be solved. But besides this, it is necessary also to discuss the ends and the aims for which we are fighting, for which we are doing battle with these formidable obstacles. Those aims cannot be taken for granted. They must be perpetually questioned and examined. The whole position, as I see it, here in this hall, surrounded by women practicing for the first time in history, I know not how many different professions, is one of extraordinary interest and importance. 
You have one rooms of your own in the house, hitherto exclusively owned by men. You are able, though not without great labor and effort, to pay the rent. You are earning your 500 pounds a year. But this freedom is only a beginning. The room is your own, but it is still bare. It has to be furnished. It has to be decorated. It has to be shared. How are you going to furnish it? How are you going to decorate it? With whom are you going to share it and upon what terms? These, I think, are questions of the utmost importance and interest. For the first time in history, you are able to ask them. For the first time, you are able to decide for yourselves what the answers should be. So let's now turn to the intellectual status of women. This reminded me of a super tense debate that you would see on Facebook or Twitter. So to me, it felt very relatable and similarly super uncomfortable for me, (laughs) but um, really valuable, I thought, to read. So again, I recommend going onto the website and reading the whole thing. Um, But just by way of introduction to what this is, it's not really a lecture or an essay. Um, Virginia Woolf had a friend named Desmond McCarthy, who was part of a literary circle called the Bloomsbury Group, which we, Rochelle mentioned in her biography of Virginia Woolf. Um, Desmond McCarthy had been educated at Cambridge, and he was the editor of the magazine The New Statesman, where he wrote a weekly editorial under the pen name Affable Hawk. And that's also partly why it felt like a Twitter thread, because that just seemed like a Twitter handle, like like, um, a pen name, I guess, that people would use on social media. Um, So Affable Hawk had written a review of a nonfiction book by Arnold Bennett called Our Women. Um, And it had a chapter in it called Are Men Superior to Women? Which really might just as well have been titled Men Are Superior to Women. So. McCarthy favorably quoted sections from the book in his weekly column called Books in General. And when Virginia Woolf read that column in The New Statesman, um, she wrote in and responded. And so she and Affable Hawk, who was really her friend Desmond McCarthy, had a debate about whether women were intellectually inferior to men. Um, so again, without reading any of the conversation, I just, I think we'll just use this opportunity to say, you know, a takeaway from the conversation. So Rochelle, do you want to go first? Yeah, I had kind of two takeaways. First, I just loved the sass that was underlying Virginia, (laughs) Virginia Woolf, just the tone and like she was over it. Um, (laughs) but I was also struck, you know, a by kind of this ridiculous logic of these reviewers making this argument that, you know, women were intellectually inferior, because I think it's indicative of, of a, a, a larger issue that people make when they're making these arguments that one group is just inherently inferior to another. It's like, you know, as a man, I'm going to set up a set of criteria about what constitutes artistic genius. And that criteria is based solely on my personal lived experience as a man. And I'm going to appoint myself and others like me as the sole arbiters of who can be considered an artist. And then I'm going to institute uh, social, economic and educational conditions that make it nearly impossible for anyone who's not like me to create any kind of art because I'm going to deny those other people education or training or freedom or autonomy or even intellectual space in which they could possibly create art. 
And then when those other people, women or people of color, or whoever it is, do manage to create some art, despite these hurdles I've put in their way, I'm going to routinely make it nearly impossible for anyone to actually access that art that's been created because I'm going to refuse to publish it or display it or perform it because I'm going to make the argument that that art is inferior because one, it has been created by a woman or a person of color and therefore it can't be genius, right? Because it doesn't fit my standard that I've created or two arguing that no one who has artistic taste, i.e. people like me is interested in seeing it or reading or listening to it because it is created by a woman or a person of color And that if that art still manages to somehow sneak into the public consciousness, I'm then going to either dismiss its value and worth because it doesn't conform to those definitions I created out of nothing and just decided was the definition of of what art should be. Or I'm going to dismiss its success as a fluke, right, a one off, no matter how great it is and argue that art by women or people of color in general is inferior because more people weren't able to accomplish the same thing, right? Well, where are the rest of them? There's, there's only one woman who's done this. So there's only one person of color who's done this. So, you know, why aren't there more people who've done it? Thus proving that my own art is inherently superior. And then when somebody points out the flaws in my argument, I'm going to pretend that I've done none of those things to gatekeep. And that the playing field has been equal all along and dismiss everybody else's lived experience as having valid, as being invalid. And you're being hysterical, right? And it's it's structural gaslighting. Mm-hmm. And then when somebody argues that we need to make space for other people's experiences, then I'm going to point out the one person that I said was proof that, you know, women and people of color aren't geniuses and said, well, Jane Austen was able to publish a novel. Well, Barack Obama got to be president. So that proves to you that anybody can do it. So I don't need to change the structure. So I got a little heated (laughs) when I read it. Preach, Rochelle. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. Wow. What can I, how can I respond to that? That's true. Everything you just said is completely true. That is, it's not a fair conversation, right? Because he has all the power. I mean, even starting with the fact that he literally got to go to Cambridge while Virginia was denied a Cambridge education, right? It's just, it's not fair. And he does seem completely oblivious to his power. Exactly. And when does he get to decide? Right, right. So it's frustrating. I mean, I think we've all been in conversations like that. And I think Mm -hmm. that's why we wanted to highlight this and um, read it because- uh, I, I, for one, could really relate. I will say this, I guess, as my comment. It's a yes and comment because mm. I do want to end on a hopeful note. And there was one tiny little glimmer of hope I found. Mm. <laughs> I mean, aside from in the conversation, you're right. Virginia Woolf is so entertainingly salty oh, and yeah. sassy. And she's just such a brilliant thinker. And I appreciated I appreciated that she did have the conversation because sometimes sometimes it's appropriate to just walk away and say I'm not going to talk about this with a certain person who's not acknowledging the unfairness of the argument and being a bully but this is her friend and she is engaging and I learned a lot from the conversation but um I just want to share that the one little glimmer of hope that I found on his end was that at the very end 
Um, Virginia Woolf says, the last thing she says, I'm going to read her paragraph and Mm -hmm. then his short little response. Quote, my difference with affable Hawk is not that he denies the present intellectual equality of men and women. It is that he, with Mr. Bennett, asserts that the mind of woman is not affected by education and liberty, that it is incapable of the highest achievements, and that it must remain forever in the condition in which it is now. I must repeat that the fact that women have improved, which Affable Hawk now seems to admit, shows that they might still improve, for I cannot see why a limit should be set to their improvement in the 19th century. But it is not education only that is needed. It is that women should have liberty of experience, that they should differ from men without fear and express their differences openly, that all activity of the mind should be so encouraged that there will always be in existence a nucleus of women who think, invent, imagine, and create as freely as men do and with as little fear of ridicule and condescension. These conditions, in my view, of great importance are impeded by such statements as those of Affable Hawk and Mr. Bennett. For a man has still much greater facilities than a woman for making his views known and respected. Certainly, I cannot doubt that if such opinions prevail in the future, we shall remain in a condition of half-civilized barbarism. At least that is how I define an eternity of dominion on the one hand and of servility on the other. Mm. Yours, etc., Virginia Woolf. So she's saying that women's intellectual capacity does keep improving the more education they are allowed to have, Um, that women need to feel free to imagine and create without fear of ridicule and condescension from men. Mm -hmm. And she's saying that men's voices are so much louder than women's in society. And so every time a male author writes that women are inferior, it makes it impossible for women to get any traction to start to believe in themselves and rise above the limitations that men have created. Yeah. So it's actually this exact type of conversation which is being published in the New Statesman, that conversation itself is holding women back, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, exactly. And so Affable Hawk, this is the the part that I thought, oh, a ray of light. Um, Affable Hawk replies, just one sentence. And he's been very wordy up until now, Um <laughs> It's been um, very ro- a very robust conversation on both ends. He just writes one sentence. He says, quote, If the freedom and education of women is impeded by the expression of my views, I shall argue no more. Mm-hmm. End of quote. So it's hard to know from that short of a response actually what he really meant, but it is possible to read it that he heard her and that he recognized that he was part of the problem and that he was making things harder for women. Mm -hmm. Um, And maybe that he learned from her and he cared about women enough to stop impeding their progress. And that's how I'm going to read it. I'm going to read it positively in a way that kind of gives me hope and reminds me um, that the truth is that the vast majority of men that I know personally are really, really good men who do not want to do damage to women. And I feel like if we have men in our lives who are willing to listen and willing to learn, it's important to keep having these conversations, even if they're frustrating or uncomfortable, or they take a little while to come around. Um, I think it's an important part of the process. So yeah, definitely. 
Well, that wraps up our discussion. That was awesome. Thank you so much again for being here, Rochelle. Oh, gosh. Thanks so much for having me. I was so, I enjoyed it so much. So did I. Um, well, our next episode of Breaking Down Patriarchy, we will be talking about two documents by Eleanor Roosevelt. First, an open letter to the women of the world, read at the first United Nations Convention in 1946. And second, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, delivered by Eleanor Roosevelt at the UN in 1948. Produced in the aftermath of World War II, these documents are unique in that they are international declarations, and they've been touchstones for women's health and human rights ever since. Um, look them up online. They're really easy to find, and they don't take long to read. So, um, oh, and one really amazing thing is you can see original video footage of both speeches on YouTube. Mm. So that's a first for the podcast. The open letter can be found by looking up Women's Resolution at UN 1946. Um, and just search it for the other one. Just search Universal Declaration of Human Rights to find the video of that one. So either read these speeches or watch them and then join us for the discussion next time on Breaking Down Patriarchy. Mm.